so while John is undressing, um, oh, I'm done. I'm ready to go. I'm in wardrobe. Let's I go. will uh, introduce uh, this tonight. Um, my name is Seth Manukin. Uh, I am the director of the Communications Forum. I know um, most of you are here to see me, and uh, I thank you for that. Um, I ran into, on the way over, John Hodgman, who I believe is primarily known for uh, having been born and raised in Brookline. How do you do? Uh, a graduate of the Heath School? I was a gra an eighth grade graduate of the Heath School in Brookline, Massachusetts. Uh, and that ended my formal education. <laughs> And Brooklyn I was a shipwright, and a scrim shander, and a boat stamper, and a thing monger. A thing monger, yeah. okay. Um, I also want to thank the DeFlores Fund for Humor, which. Uh, yeah, me too. Very, very generously provided the $800,000 that John requires for this event. Uh, he said that that was higher because it was in his hometown. Yeah, um, yeah. I which, don't like to come back. And also, uh, Chris, do we have a sign-up sheet? Yes, right there. OK, so um, before you go, please maybe put your email on the sign-up sheet, and then you will learn about other upcoming Communications Forums events, um, including uh, Aparna Nancharla, who will be here next semester, uh, the um, delightful and wonderful Sarah Bowell, who will be here Indeed. in the spring. Um, we got her just before the second Incredibles movie was announced, thank goodness. Um, and many other exciting things. We will not spam you about information other than the six events we do a year. Uh, and we will not sell your email addresses, asterisk, unless you are a celebrity. Um, so. Thank you all very much for coming, and should we get started? Yes. All right. I'll go over here and wait for my introduction. Okay. So, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the host of Judge John Hodgman, is that the name of the podcast? Okay, of Judge John Hodgman. <laughs> and other things. Uh, a minor television personality a fake internet justice, a regular on the new show John Glazer Loves Gear, uh, and the auteur okay, of okay, Vacation Land. Don't fuck Land, this up, don't fuck this up. Don't currently currently occurring at theaters across the country. Can't um, oh, uh-oh, there was an asterisk next to that that said you might want to double check if he's currently doing this. His website says he is, but there are only two more shows listed after this one. Uh, including tomorrow in Seattle. So if any of you are really dedicated fans, you will get the nigh to Seattle for tomorrow. So a big warm MIT welcome to Judge John Hodgman. How do you do? How do you do? I can you hear me? Is this on? Yes. Okay, good. I'm sorry that I messed it up. Maybe I'll just hold it. I found this hat backstage just now. <laughs> so, so. And I realized I haven't had lice in a while. 
Maybe I should give this a try. I actually thought, so Leslie Jones's rider, who she's also gonna be here next semester. Really? Yeah. Fantastic. Um, uh, stipulates that she get merch from the institute that she's performing. So I thought that perhaps that was what go was going on is here as well. But Maybe I, I got Leslie's hat. Now discover that you're just a hobo. Um, <laughs> Why do you say that? <laughs> Just because I made you give me whiskey and food in the hat? Uh, do you have your own hobo name? Yes, it's Mr. John Hodge. Okay. You're making a reference to, for those of your you who are uh, under the age of 70, you're making a reference to my first book of fake trivia, which came out 11 years ago. Can you imagine were we ever that young? Uh, in which I listed 700 uh, hobo nicknames, uh, which was 699 too many. <laughs> and yet you've written books since then. I, I have. Boy, this has become a real interview all of a sudden. All right. Um, well, the first thing I want to ask you about, actually, yeah. is your middle name okay. is Kellogg. Kellogg, is that correct? that's right, yeah. Is that due to a love of cereal? Uh, no, it's a family name. It's uh, that was a family my name of my guess, dad's. Actually. Um, I do, not, I do not believe that we are related to the Battle Creek, Michigan Kellogg's. There's no cornflake fortune for me in my future, I'm afraid. <laughs> but we might, maybe, right? I can make a claim. <laughs> no, I'm talking about a legal claim. <laughs> a claim here means nothing. Uh, but no, that's just, just my middle name. Okay, we can move on. What's your middle name, Seth? My middle see, name. I read your Wikipedia page as well, but I didn't catch your middle name. Did you, did you notice the most exciting thing about me? Well, you wrote three best-selling books. No, only one, alas, bestseller. I did write three books. Oh, OK, right, good. Yes. Well, that's... So you could say best-selling author of three books. Let me guess, the best-selling one was about sports? Yes, that is true, about Boston Your sports. sports. Yes. Yeah, about Boston sports. And you should know that, because having formerly been a literary agent, yes. my publisher then made, for them, the very unfortunate economic mistake of thinking that that was a bestseller due to some fault of mine as opposed to the fact that it was about a regional sports team that is popular in New England. Uh, I see. And so for my next book, they let me write about whatever I wanted and then found that vaccines and autism were not as good a seller not, as baseball. Not quite as mainstream appeal. Unfortunately. As the Boston Red Sox. For them, yes. Yeah. Um, so we are, this is going to be a full. But, but Seth, that was good and important work. Yes, thank you very much. We don't. The, the Red Sox. Yes. Yes. No, the vaccine, the vaccine right. book. Both of us have been fathers. That's right. And having children not inflicted with vaccine-preventable diseases. Well, that's because I keep, I keep my children this in got, a box. This got, serious, <laughs> this got serious much more quickly than I was. No, I believe in, just so it's clear, I believe in vaccines. Unfortunately. I, uh, I, believe, I believe in science, just so you know. That is now something up for debate, unfortunately. But we are going to wait a little bit before we get into the weepy and serious part of the conversation. Uh, Wait a minute. I don't know why we're going to wait. I just want to know, how's everyone doing? <laughs> Thumbs down up there. Thumbs down. All right. Thumbs down. Everyone's feeling, a lot, feeling bad, right? Uh, yeah, it's terrible. I mean, I don't know. Is, and I asked genuinely, and I'm not going to yell at anybody, is there anyone here who voted for Donald Trump? A single person in this room? I mean, statistically speaking, someone should have because you're all white. That's not true. That's and, not true. And, and, Excuse me. I understand. I know. It was just. It was just a little exaggeration. 
and, and speaking of I know, it's just that I know my audience very well. <laughs> Brookline, there were actually 2,000 people that voted for Trump in Brookline. I discovered sure. today in the Brookline tab. Sure, Brookline has some white people in it. Uh, I would say most, but I think 23,000 people that did not vote for him. Here's why, so we, I mean, there's nothing else to talk about, right? We'll just talk about this. Well. <laughs> let, me see, let me see what you got. That is the big thing. <laughs> First, number one on the list, Caddyshack, question mark? <laughs> You're right. You know what? We'll alternate. Okay, that's fine. We'll start with Caddyshack, we'll then Trump, then the next thing on the list, a series then Trump. Of, I have a series of questions. So Caddyshack, well, I don't want to take you off of your, uh, your set list. Well, I learned, I mean, my, my, we've never met before today, although no, my wife- No, we just had a great time in your office. And my wife did see you after a dentist appointment once, walking through Coolidge Corner. Oh, really? Yeah. My dentist appointment? No, her. I, well, I have no- <laughs> Her dad just went, which I think is why she was somewhat. Also, whenever, I, whenever I come home to see my dad here in Brookline, I go and have a root canal. <laughs> she, I, I believe Sarah, he was wearing shorts. I think that also threw her off. Wait, where's your wife? Uh, she's right there. Oh, how do you do? Where, where, what, who's your dentist? We've since changed. Yeah, so let's not, let's mute that on the recording. Why did you have problems with your dentist? Um, he was in Brookline and was quite pricey. Oh, I thought you were gonna say he put you under and did something <laughs> No, no, so now I think, I believe we go to, the term is student dentists. Is that right? Sure. Yeah, now we go to dentists in training. Yeah, like uh, like barber school of yes, dentistry. Yes, exactly. Yes. So I mean, I went to a, I went to a student psychotherapist. And how did that work out, John? It was fantastic. Okay. I was uh, twenty. What are you doing? Taking my picture? I don't show up on film. <laughs> are you authorized? That's fine. She's also Sarah. Most of the people here, I believe, are named Sarah. That is also a Sarah. I went to when I was uh, twenty three or so, and I moved to New York, Okay. having been graduated from college. Uh, and I didn't know what I was gonna do with my life. I've talked about this before, so if you've heard it before, shut up. Uh, and I was sad and living with a friend in a basement and eating salt and pepper sandwiches and wondering if I had stopped that part of my life where I was becoming something and started the part of my life where I was ending up as something. And I decided I should get some therapy. And luckily, NYU, New York University, offered sliding scale therapy, pay as you can afford therapy, because all of the therapists were uh, students. And the thing, that I, the thing that I could not tolerate was the ambiguity of what was going to happen in my life. Because growing up in Brookline, and, and then going to BHS, and then going to Yale, I had a very clear sense of like, here's the next step, here's the next step, here's the next step. VHS is business, Harvard school? <laughs> business high school. <laughs> business high school of Brookline. I had no business going there. And, and now all of a sudden I was set loose in the world and all there was for me was ambiguity and it was terrifying because I had no idea what was going to happen. So I would go to this therapist and uh, it helped that she was a beautiful woman. Okay. And I mean, look at me. I, I'm a, at that time, 23 year old, only child, Whovian weirdo. Did not have a mustache, but had all kinds of other affectations. The opportunity to sit in a room and talk to a woman, and she had to listen to me. 
had never occurred to me before. It never happened in my life. And you know, th therapy is, fan is fantastic if you haven't had it. And I honestly feel that it was just the opportunity to have permission to talk about yourself. Wait, I'm sorry. Someone I, just, else. You grew up in Brookline, and the first time you had therapy was when you were 23. <laughs> yeah. Well, my my parents statistically my parents were my parents were Catholics. <laughs> they, were, they didn't send me to therapy. We had, and they'd stopped being Catholic, so I didn't even have confession. Right. I heard about I heard about it, and it sounded nice. Confession. Yeah. Oh, it sounded there interesting. There are other to, ways that you can pay women to spend time with them. Yeah, but I'm shy. I'm, no, I'm not a creep. <laughs> I wasn't talking about that. Oh, then I guess I am a creep. <laughs> go on, go on. Anyway, it was this incredibly liberating moment to just be able to, to, to talk about myself in silence. And truly, she didn't even need to be there. I mean, if, you, if, you've, if you've not had talk therapy, it's fin it, to have permission to talk is an amazing thing that not everyone gets to experience. And, she might as well have been a cardboard cutout of Captain Kirk, and it would have been the greatest thing in my mental health. But the fact that she was a beautiful woman, I enjoyed talking to her, and I enjoyed her having to listen to me. It was a very un unhealthy situation, ultimately. <laughs> and then, it was, but from my point of view, it was all going well. And then I got, just a, maybe four or five weeks into treatment, I got this letter in the mail that was a, an insurance statement that I had to send to my health insurance to get reimbursed for this. And it had my name and address and date of birth and all this information. And then there was a line that said, diagnosis. I can't remember the number, but it was like 649.2. I'm like, what the fuck is 649.2? <laughs> like they figured it out already. <laughs> Why am I still going? And I went into the office I was, and I, the next meeting, and she said, well, would you like to sit down and talk? And I'm like, ah, ah, ah. What is diagnosis 649.2? And she said, what are you talking about? I said, like, you wrote down 649.2. You've diagnosed me. What is it? I have a right to know. She said, it's not, that's just, we have to put something down for insurance purposes that has nothing to do with your ongoing therapy. I'm like, I think it does. <laughs> I really think it does. She said, no, it's not going to therapeutically help you to know what I put down. And I'm like, well. <laughs> That's a bad sign. I'll be, I'll be the judge of that. And she said, well, it's a code in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. And I'm like, get it down. You're telling me there's a rule book for my therapy? A dungeon manual? Dungeon master's manual for right? my the therapy? The DSM-2. What's the, that? I think it was the DSM-2 in the 90s, or 3, maybe. I don't remember Go exactly on. which one it was. And so she pulls it down, and she looks it up, and she says, um, OK, here it is, a change of life inability to tolerate ambiguity. <laughs> and I'm like, shit, you're a good therapist. <laughs> That's, uh, I, like, I never had to see her again. Our, 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 our therapy bills are very different because mine usually have eight or 10 numbers, different sets of numbers. Different sets them. of yes. numbers. Yeah. Sort what of like a grab bag, like sure. choose your own you know what, we'll diagnosis. Just, yeah, we'll just put down everything. Right, see. yes, exactly. You cross out what you don't well, think. Hopefully fits. the insurance will pay for something. Right. So, Getting back so to what's important. So Caddyshack. Yes. I recently um, was very saddened to discover that you have not seen Caddyshack. Oh, no, I've seen Caddyshack. Where'd you? Then you lied on your podcast. Well, maybe I've seen it since then. <laughs> you said, I almost quote, golf movies are bad, 
I will not watch golf movies. That is why I have never seen Caddyshack. Oh, I think I meant The Legend of Bagger Vance. <laughs> <laughs> you know how you get those two confused? It's they are the there, yes. <laughs> I think that I was leading up to a, a, a distortion of the Mark Twain quote. You were, yes, and when, in which you which said... Is that, uh, golf is a good walk spoiled. And I said, Caddyshack is a good comedy movie spoiled by golf. I think Caddyshack is a good Bill Murray movie spoiled by golf, is, is, was the Mark Twain quote, <laughs> I believe. But I've seen, I don't know, I think it's one of those that you've seen almost all of it, but in parts over the years. I'm just now. At birthday parties and on cable and your whole what have the, you. This whole meeting out justice thing now that I find there, that may not all be on the up and up. I'm all oh, of a sudden looking at that sure. anew. People have decided right. whether to have barren or witch-like lawns. So like I told, I told a slight exaggeration on a podcast one time and now I'm disqualified from being president <laughs> of the United States. <laughs> I mean, you really want to get back there. Everything's acceptable now. Okay, touche. But you, is that your favorite movie? No. Uh, it is not. Well, it's an interesting hill to die on. Um, but I do feel like, uh, well, Stripes, so Stripes is one of my favorite movies. Right. Uh, it is the first time I saw a partially unclothed moving naked woman. Blair Brown, I believe. You obviously have dove in way more into that than I have. Um, but I saw it very uncomfortably with a friend's What's mother. That? P.J. Souls from Rock and Roll High School is the which one? In the mud wrestling scene? Oh, the mud, I'm sorry. Oh, I don't remember the mud wrestling scene. I Wait, what is that scene? That now one. I need to watch it again. <laughs> oh, yes, right. right. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she sits on the stove and he pretends to flip her like a pancake. She was also in Rock and Roll High School. Boy, wasn't that, wasn't that huh. fun when sexism was allowed? Yeah. <laughs> Ah, the so that's PJ Souls, not Blair Brown? No, but I think you're right. Mud Can we get another live mic for our IMDB expert? John. <laughs> with John Candy, right? Is that right? Mud John wrestling Can with John Candy? John Candy was in the mud wrestling scene. Yeah. You have to understand, some of these people are younger than we are. Yes. They may not I thought you were going to say, you have to understand, some of these people are dead. Uh, that may also be right, true. Right, yes. We should, have, we, should have, we should have thought about learning the Stripes theme song when we were... What is the Stripes theme song? I don't know. Right? Da -da 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 -da. No? Am I... <laughs> that went south quickly. Uh, isn't that the... Now I'm, thinking, now I'm thinking of the 1941 theme song. Ah, uh, yes, with John Belushi. Okay. The only good thing about that movie. Have you seen that movie? That's insane. Wait, no one here has seen 1941? No, of course oh, okay. not. Okay. No, no, no. put point. your hands down. <laughs> so, what, but what is your favorite Bill Murray movie? Uh, Quick. Me personally, or one? You. Well, Stripes for sentimental and um, perverted reasons, and Ghostbusters otherwise. Fair. Whoa. <laughs> Someone said what? I mean, Groundhog Day fights with Ghostbusters sometimes. Groundhog but... Day is a perfect movie. And you know what's not a perfect movie? Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. Yeah. But Ghostbusters is a very lovable movie. You know what is a perfect movie with Bill Murray in it? Groundhog Day? Wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. 
one at a time. Everyone. <laughs> Scrooge is I already not said the Groundhog Day. Answer. Scrooge is not the answer. Yeah. Not the answer I'm looking for. Raise your hand, please. Here. Rushmore? Mm. Close. Not the answer I'm looking for. Razor's Edge. Ah! <laughs> I've never actually seen it. You have Razor's to remember, Edge. there's an audience here. It's not just yes, me and right, right. anymore. Not two 44, 45-year-old guys. Right. My dad took me to see Razor's Edge. W. Summer said, Mom, I was pretentious. <laughs> yes. At, at Cleveland Circle? Moonrise Kingdom was the answer I was looking for. Ah. A perfect movie. Well done. You're breaking you, into Rocky Top You win early. a tub of hummus. <laughs> Hand that back to her, please. <laughs> Although Rushmore is also a perfect movie that was close, uh, close uh, with a bullet. Rushmore was, I, 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 um, I'm beginning to rethink starting this sentence, but I have not seen Moonrise Kingdom. Oh, no, that's fine. Oh. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. Insofar as it, it's a wonderful movie, she's now going to quit. But it's like it's not like form. it's not like if you had said I have not seen Caddyshack or whatever. Right, it's exactly. Right. Really upset. It's not part of the. It's not part of the canon to my dismay. Outside of Razor's Edge, are there any bad Bill Murray movies? Space Jam. I'm not sure I would even call that a Bill Murray movie. A I'd like starring to that Bill it's Murray not... movie that is bad. Hmm. Hands up what? if you've got no. one. I'm kind of blanking, but I know that they exist. What? Garfield. 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 And then there was that one with an elephant? Where the buffalo roam? Oh, that's that's that, Hunter let's, S. Let's Thompson. Back off. Yeah, yeah. Let's back off. Hunter. That's that's he's a he's a big Hunter S. Thompson fan. Yeah. Did you like that? Why well, what? Nothing, yeah. sir. Yes. Um, I thought that he uh, Hunter is a difficult person to capture on film, and he actually portrayed him quite accurately. I think what it possibly showed is that it is not fun spending two hours watching Hunter Thompson. You know? Did you know Hunter Thompson? I did in life? know Hunter, and I can confirm that it was not fun. I can tell you him. that you knew him because you keep calling him Hunter. Uh, Were you best friends? We. Uh, uh, no. Were we were you not. enemies? We, no, he would occasionally call me at 3 in the morning. Um, and uh, inevitably, I would pick up the phone, and he would say, Seth, are you doing anything weird? And I would have to explain that I was asleep, as I always was, at 3 o'clock in the morning. And the only one of us who might be doing something weird was him. How did you come to know him? I came to know him uh, because I was dating his editor, mm -hmm. um, and I found... Not anymore, I hope. I discovered, no. Um, and I discovered uh, that editor had a dual role as babysitter at that point in his life, and mm -hmm. so ended up out there... His editor would babysit him. Yeah, sort of, of writing. I sometimes feel like I could use this, but getting him to write would mean literally sitting with him in a room while he bet on sports and then getting him to try and give a sentence at a time for days on end. You can see that why that sounds like a great way to be a writer, except for the betting on sports parts. Such good friends. Yeah, he would. Yeah. He so would, she would sit there and he would talk, and they, she would write it down. Yes. It's hardly even writing. Uh, yes. Do you, do you still know her by any chance? I do still know her. Yes. Um, uh, I do still know her. Yeah. Uh, our, so you were dating. You were dating his editor. Yeah. 
And were you a big Hunter Thompson fan? I was previous to that. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was. Oh, then, uh, so, are you no so longer? So the other. Well, no. So the. I think the. So and I also ended up writing a piece about him, in which I said that it was too bad he had squandered all of his talent. Uh, and um, he You were counting that. on the fact that he couldn't read? No, but I think he, at that point in his life, in the early aughts, late mm -hmm. 90s, early aughts. When did he die? Uh, 2004? Boy, some best friend you are. Ish. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and uh, he was mainly surrounded by sycophants and, um, and toadies. So I think that the fact that um, I wrote a piece saying, wow, it really sucks what he's done for the last 15 or 20 years, which was, I think, undeniably true. He, uh, for some reason, appreciated. He appreciated it? Yeah. Oh, so he reached out to you after you had... He started calling me at 3 in the morning and asking me if I was doing anything weird. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think he was hoping to hear? I do not know. Uh, I do not know. Um, I think he was trying to Did be... Did you ever do anything weird with him? I did not. I mean, I rode, I got in a car with him driving. That's, that sounds bad. In, 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 uh, in, uh, in the Red Shark, the car made famous. And, uh, and, um, and then we drove down an unlit uh, mountain road in Woody Creek, Colorado to a burger joint. And um, I thought, I've had a decent life. If this <laughs> if all ends, ends this right now, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but um, we made it there and back. Yeah. Uh, but no, I did not do anything But weird. you survived. I did. In this yes. timeline. In this timeline. Yeah, in, exactly. On Earth 1. Yeah. On Earth 2, where we now have the first, in that, in that timeline, the first female. In that timeline, you died, but Hillary Clinton, but was, Hillary Clinton was elected president, <laughs> which is a sacrifice Thanks I will a lot, make. Seth. I will make. Well, I, I'm sure we, your wife and children are I know. Happy. I was going to say, I might need to finagle that a little bit. On Earth 3. I survived and Hillary Clinton was president. So let's go there. I'd like to go there. Can you open a portal right away? Well, we are, it's, we're going to explore that later through music. That's true. Oh, yeah. We're going to, I thought we were going to just have a, a, a hoedown the entire time. Uh, we, do you want to do Rocky Top? No, that's the closer, dude. I am not, we're not starting with should I stay or should I go? No, no. I, I know three other songs. Okay. All right. <laughs> I thought, that, I thought that exhausted the songs that we wrote together, but... Oh, no, those are the two songs we're going to do together. Okay, so you're just going to... If so you what, have a couple what, what of solo songs, songs, you can do those You should too. play and I should tune. So... Do you know, um, do you know a, a, a mandolin player? Usually I tell this joke about banjo players. Um, a mandolin player and a ukulele player jump mm -hmm. off a cliff. Who lands first? A uh, mandolin player and a banjo player jump off a cliff. Ukulele. Oh, ukulele. Mandolin player and a ukulele player. A mandolin player. player is necessary for the joke. Got, I got it. All right. That gives me a clue. <laughs> Let me go to the blackboard. I'll figure this out. <laughs> Do we, <laughs> we must have some engineers in the audience. What's the relative uh, air displacement of a banjo versus a <laughs> mandolin versus a ukulele? Gosh, Seth, I don't know. Which, which, who lands first, the, the mandolin player? The ukulele player, because right. the mandolin player is still tuning his instrument. Ah. Mandolin humor, folks. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I, I'm going to Seattle tomorrow to perform a show in which I sing a song. And so I had it with me. And I walked into the office, and Seth said, I play the mandolin. I'm like, 
let's just have a hoedown. Let's just sing songs because everything is terrible. And uh, I don't know a lot and of songs. And then I said, I don't really play the mandolin, unfortunately. Right. And then he's like, can you, you want to play Uncle John's band? And I said, mm. I am getting on the next train home. Thank you very much. We, I think that the Grateful Dead is slotted for later in the discussion. All right. Right? You're not a fan. Uh, I'm not, everyone likes what they like. <laughs> not for me. It's, I'm used to being alone on that hill. It's a, it's a... With lots of patchouli-drenched titties. Yes. It's a smelly hill to be on. It's a smelly white hill to be on, yes. I did, I brought my six-year-old son to a dead show this summer. Well, but it couldn't have been a dead show. It was a dead and company show, yes. What does that mean? It means that it is starring um, John Mayer in the role of Jerry Garcia. <laughs> Which is not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> I didn't know it could get worse. Truly, truly not as bad as it sounds. Um, but, uh, but he John stayed. Mayer. He stayed for the whole thing. We can, we can, um... <laughs> what are you doing? You play, oh, you're playing, playing the, the song. The, the, the instrumental interlude in Uncle John's yeah, Band. Yeah, do Uncle John's Band, and then we'll come right back after the break. But, uh... <laughs> But yes, John. All right, here's a. Here, all right, so my wife can also attest. John Mayer was much better. First of all, he wore polka dots, checks, madras checks, which I, uh -huh. a madras jumpsuit, shorts jumpsuit, which I felt like he should get credit for that. What kind of credit? Credit like it is the most ridiculous thing any human being could wear. And also, very ostentatiously, on the two nights, I went to both nights. He dressed, uh, <laughs> he dressed like an overdressed baby. Wore, wore like, wore like distinct, but very gaudy and visible, like $80,000 watches. With his, with his baby suit. <laughs> no, he only wore the was baby his, suit is one his, night. Is his Grateful Dead personality, I'm a rich baby. <laughs> uh, no comment. Are you gonna Are you gonna play the song? No, that no. Oh, I'm okay. not. Yeah. Why don't you do your song? All right. So, it's a it's a bummer. Every everything's a Come bummer. Here. Oh. <laughs> um, and uh, and yet I'm glad to be here, and I only know a few ukulele songs, and it's and sometimes uh, you don't feel like talking about what's going on. It hurts. The the reason that it hurts is not merely that it's a disappointment, but I, and not merely because like uh, a, a death of a loved one, it breaks time in half, such that forever after there will be the before and the after of this election, and the after of this election is terrifying and unbearable seeming, and we don't know how we will possibly go on, and we don't know what this person is going to do because uh, he never, meaningfully spoke about policy and I think we all intuited that his head is a writhing bag of snakes and we don't <laughs> he simply he simply says what comes into his mind at that time whatever it'll take to get the faceless mannequins around him to cheer him and comedian John Hodgman everyone <laughs> it's, a, it's a it's a terrifying it's a terrifying moment and it, and it hurts not because of him to me anyway but because we we know on some level that it was meant to hurt, that there are a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump because they were very, very angry 
at some amorphous collection of enemies that Donald Trump conjured up for them. And um, we are among those enemies. Um, you know, whether we are uh, non-straight white dudes or people who hang around prestigious universities in the Northeast or immigrants or anything, um, this, or women. This was designed to hurt us. They didn't care about what happened today or yesterday. They cared about what happened when he won and we felt bad. And that, you know, we were asked to feel a lot of empathy by the news media for Trump voters and I do feel a lot of empathy. A lot of people who've been left behind by this economy um, and by uh, malfeasance on both sides of the aisle, but I know, we know because they bragged about it, that a lot of the Trump voters were not voting for Trump because they were hurting, they were voting for Trump because they wanted to hurt people. And I felt hurt, and my daughter felt hurt, and probably people you know felt hurt, and we're looking forward to a future where maybe people don't just feel hurt, but are hurt and uh, displaced as a real drag. And the only way I know how to get through it is because I grew up uh, in Massachusetts, the birthplace of rage and spite. <laughs> I have experienced this before. <laughs> a total disregard for policy or the long-term view. Can I make that person mad? <laughs> Can I hurt that person? And you may know that the mayor of Boston, Marty Walsh, wanted, even before he was mayor, to make a particular song the official rock song of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Roadrunner. Roadrunner by Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers. Fantastic and that's a perfect. Song. Great song. Perfect. It's a great song. And, you know, let's just put it this way. It was the most qualified song it was. to become I, if that the official rock song of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. If that had been the only thing he ran on, yeah. I would have voted for him. And, you know, it, it's a great song. It's a beautiful song. It's got Massachusetts in it. Stop and Shop. It's got Stop and Shop in it, Route 128 in Going it. 1,000 miles an hour. And what happened was it was going to speed through the legislature and become the official rock song of the Commonwealth. It's radio. But then on. someone else in Massachusetts heard that another person in Massachusetts wanted something. And that was not allowed to stand. <laughs> and so those other legislators in Massachusetts, when they heard that Marty Walsh wanted this, for no reason other than to spite him, introduced another song in competition to be official rock song of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And they got into a legislative death battle and both songs died in committee. What was the other song? That song was Dream On by Aerosmith. Oh yeah. <laughs> ah. And that is definitely a song. <laughs> and it's a pretty good song, but it is not a rock song. That is a power ballad. This is a rock song. We can have some nice things, though, because in Massachusetts, because the Red Sox do still have Dirty Water is their victory song, which I think is a uh, clear 
win for the forces of good in the universe. Any song that celebrates, I think, muggers, lovers, and thieves uh, in the chorus is um, a song I'll take any day. And, and, and that celebrates a polluted river um, as opposed to uh, New York, New York. One question, though. What are the Red Sox? <laughs> road runner, road runner. Going faster miles an hour. Gonna drive to the stop and shop with my radio on. I'm in love with Massachusetts and the neon when it's cold outside and the highway when it's late at night. I got my radio on. I'm the roadrunner. I'm in love with modern moonlight Route 128 when it's dark outside I'm in love with Massachusetts I'm in love with the radio on Helps me not be so lonely late at night Helps me not feel so alone late at night Don't feel so bad now I'm in the car Don't feel so alone I got my radio on I'm the roadrunner That's right Welcome to the spirit of 1956. Patient in the bushes next to 57. The highway's your girlfriend as you go by quick. Suburban trees, suburban speed, and it smells like heaven. I said, Roadrunner once, Roadrunner twice. I'm in love with rock and roll, y'all. And I'll be out all night. Not all night, I got a plane to catch to Seattle tomorrow. <laughs> miles an hour gonna drive right to the stop and shop gonna drive with my radio on and me in love with modern moonlight me in love with modern rock and roll modern girls and modern rock and roll I'm gonna drive with my radio on I'm the roadrunner now you sing modern lovers radio on Radio Why aren't you, you all have to be singing. Don't you understand? This is the sing-along portion. Do you not know the song? You might not know the song. Some of you are young. Some of you are old. <laughs> all you have to do is shout, sing, radio on, radio on, radio on, radio on, radio off? No, always radio on. <laughs> Even when I'm singing something different, then that's what you sing. Radio on. Good, but louder. Radio Wait. on. Radio on. Yes. Radio on. Radio on. Radio on. 
I got the AM. I got the car. I got the AM now. I got the, I got the car from Massachusetts now. I got the, the power of Massachusetts now. I have the power of Cambridge, Massachusetts. I have the power of Western Massachusetts. I have the power of Heath School. I have the power of the Pioneer Valley now. I have the power of Greenfield, Massachusetts. Greenfield is not a shithole. Just an ordinary town with some economic problems. I have the power of the Mohawk Trail, also known as Route 2. Radio. That's the first song of our, of our hoedown. What chords are those? What are the two chords? What chords are they? What are the two chords? I'm yeah. never going to tell you. All right. D and A. I should have told you that and you could have done it with me. A? This is like Massachusetts dueling banjos. <laughs> Um, all right. All right. So we talked about Trump. We talked about Caddyshack. Yes. Let's talk about your action figures. Okay. Uh, I like them all. Where do you want to start? Well, how about, um, why don't we start in Mos Eisley? Uh, over here. A more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Words, words, words. Um, What's the rest of the quote? Uh, you will never find. Ugh, even Obi-Wan was talking Yoda talk then. <laughs> Um, never find Object you. before subject. Uh, so, um, first of all, does anyone have this Lego set? Oh my fucking god. <laughs> so, you, you guys. Uh, no one here owns Mos Eisley? I don't. Wow. Is it a collector's item set? Well, <laughs> funny you should ask. Uh, when I started buying Lego, um, several years ago, I did it by accident uh, because I purchased a set that I thought I was going to build with my two-year-old, and it was for ages 16 and up. Sure. Um, <laughs> which I did. I did not realize. By there. the way, there are no Lego sets for two-year-olds, unless um, there are those eating Lego well, sets. Well, there, there, there are there are Duplos. There yeah, are du Duplos. Yeah. No, we're not going to talk about no, Duplos. No, I would prefer we don't. Uh, so bunch bunch of garbage. <laughs> you know, you use a Duplo for it. You use that to make a jetty. You throw it in the sea. You can also, if you need to make very oversight, let's, let's move on from Duplos. I'm glad you uh, found some use for Duplo. But so I, um, this was a yay big model. I'll, of, I'll mail you all the Duplo I have left that, see, you in should, a burning box. You should be careful because we have, we have already asked everyone we know to donate their Lego to us. Um, and now yeah, I would say. Lego is good, Duplo no good. You okay. want that Duplo? No, uh, we don't. Uh, I'll we, send it to we, you. I we, have we some sweet not. Duplo. I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm not gonna brag. Uh, but but um, it never but it never captured our our children's attention. Do you know that? And my wife did not believe me when I said this. That Duplo also attached to Lego. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. 
<laughs> I, think I think your husband's gone mad. <laughs> How do they attach? You can put a Lego on a Duplo? The, yes, yeah. Huh. They Lego do attach. on a Duplo. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so I built this R2-D2 and discovered that. Um, Lego R2-D2. Lego R2-D2. By yourself. Yay big. While your son was screaming, pay attention to me, daddy. Uh, no, must finish. I did this. I don't think any of my former thesis students were here, but I did this solely while I was having meetings with my thesis students. <laughs> and um, I, told sure. them, I told them it was a way to gauge their progress. Uh, um, and how, they, how so? They did, they did not ask how so, because there's no scenario in which that actually makes sense. But um, what I discovered All right. was, that, uh, was that for um, people with acute anxiety, uh, Lego can be quite meditative. Um, sure. Because you take things and you stick them in places they're supposed to go, and they click together very satisfyingly. Yeah. So I started spending a frightening amount of money on Lego. And you, and you slowly... You slowly build a model of a whole healthy person. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Over time, I am still filling that hole inside. Um, I, but, I am with you. I am with you hundred percent. But then I, I, uh, I, the amount I started to spend became a little bit frightening. So I um, told myself and my wife, and actually got my father to invest in this scheme. Well, that's that, your father. Yes. How do you do, sir? That um, that it made sense if I bought two of every Lego set. We could keep one in the attic, mm -hmm. and then when they stopped making it, we could sell it, and I would get the money back for the one that I built, so it would be like having Lego for free. It's a hobby that would pay for itself. Yes. Because Lego discontinues its Over time. Over time. And, and they, they, they do have a high resale That R2-D2, which initially sold for $120, now sells for $500. Well, that's, uh, you could have had quite a return. I How did not buy two of that. Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah. You got burned in the The R2 ones D2 that I have so far bought two of have not had that same <laughs> return. Uh, but I do have a very large uh, um, Sydney Opera House, if anyone is in the market for one, unopened. What's, what's that going for now on the well, resale? Well, um, they have not stopped making it. So uh -huh. it is going for, I believe, the $320 that Lego sells it for. Uh, but if you get in now, once they stop making it, I will sell it to you for $380. How many duplicate sets of Lego do you have? Unopened duplicate sets of Lego do you have in your storage? Well, let's cubicle? talk money, monetary value. I don't want value. to talk about money. Um, I have a duplicate Death Star. I don't want to hear about each one. Uh, I would say probably. There have been a lot of Death Stars. No, there have not. There have been three. <laughs> you know what? When you're talking Lego, three is a lot to me. Well, until recently, there were only two. Um, uh, one of them goes for $5,000. I do not have the duplicate of that one. Which one do you have? I have the one that they only stopped making last month. The new dupe. Uh, the whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, the, 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 your duplicate is the newest. Is one. the new? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. The one that is goes for lots of money is the um, one that is being reconstructed from uh, from oh, and, Empire in, in Return of the Jedi. Empire? Nope. Jedi? Oh fuck! <laughs> Good lord! Oh man! This this night is going to shit. Um, anyway. I thought I was on firm ground here. I am clearly not. No. I do not. Your what I want to talk about is not completed. What I want to. Your shields are not fully functional. 
But when, when they show that, when they show it like with pieces falling off of it, that's yes. a Jedi. Yes. <laughs> Damn. All right. Have uh, you seen these movies? I've seen them. I've, 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 I made my I, my wife and I rewatched all of them multiple times before um, the one that fixed it all came out last year. <laughs> yeah, if I did it again. This, this yeah. should make things right. The opening line of yes, the most, I know. Very controversial. Uh, not controversial. The prequels were awful, and that fixed well, it. Well, not controversial among audiences. Very, that was the thing. That line at the beginning of the Force Awakens is what pissed off George, George Lucas. George Lucas. Yes, that is true. And rumor yes. has it. <laughs> And that caused a rift, caused a, a rift in the force. It, ca it caused a rift. And a, a, well, how far down the Star Wars rabbit hole are we going well, to go? Well, so let's, I'm going to pull us back a little not, bit. Not um, to cross fantasy properties. Uh, um, and, uh, but I, I would like to talk about the... So talk to me about your Moss Eisley set. About, about this scene right here. Okay. Actually, um, I'm sorry. For, yeah, so yeah. For, I those, thought, for those of you who are not on stage... <laughs> Seth is making reference to the scene where uh, Han Solo and Greedo are having just a little get-together. <laughs> there are various versions of what happens during this get-together. Sometimes Greedo shoots first, sometimes Han shoots first. Well, I saw a version where they just really kind of opened up to each other. <laughs> so um, what do you want to tell me about well, I that? I want to talk about the Han shot first. So uh, clearly Han shot first. Yes. Uh, and it established his character as an amoral uh, uh, criminal who had to go on an arc of redemption during so that first movie. In the face of tyranny and death, uh, is it appropriate ever to meet tyranny with tyranny or meet the threat of death with preemptive death? We just went back to Trump all of a sudden. Yes. <laughs> Does everyone know this scene? So. Greedo is explaining that he... Yeah, these people all knew what Return of the Jedi was. I think they probably know. <laughs> Radio on. Um, uh, yes, and Han shot first. There are versions where that has been edited, uh, but uh, Han shot first. Um, and so you think that establishes him as amoral? Well, it, it Otherwise he would have... Here, here, okay, so there are two ways to talk about this. Was it an intrinsically moral act? That is to say, would I ever shoot Greedo first? <laughs> Probably that guy was weird. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then there is a contextual argument as to, or I should say narrative argument, as to whether it made sense that Han shot first, that Han murdered a Greedo in cold blood. There are more than... You're, you're, you think it's a race of clones? No, he's a Rodian. Okay. Greedo is a Rodian. Greedo is his name. Right, but was, you said a Greedo. I was making a, I was making a deep cut joke <laughs> by misstating what it was. So whether it was fair, whether it was moral for Han to shoot Greedo first, gr was Greedo necessarily going to kill him? I would say yes. Well... I would I'm say not that sure that that's true because I've never had this conversation before and I'm really into it. <laughs> I would say, I, I don't blame you for walking out, sir. Have a good night. <laughs> good luck to you. Uh, do me a favor before you go, shut and lock the doors. 
He's, he's, he's going to join the resistance. If Greedo, Greedo was trying to collect a bounty that was set on Han's head, and it, to justify murdering Greedo, Han would have to believe that Greedo, that the bounty was on Han's head, dead or alive, and that Greedo was intending to kill him. And that Greedo uh, might kill him at any moment. Uh, and uh, therefore, Han would have to shoot him. But if Greedo was going to kill Han at any moment, he would never have ever said a word to Han Solo. He would have come up behind him and shot him in the back of the head. Because when Han shoots Greedo, everyone turns around for a second, and then they go back to Cantina song number one. Right. And no one gives That's a, why no one gives a Bantha Pundu about it. <laughs> so we have to conclude that Greedo's intent was to take Han alive under threat of death. And Han didn't want to do that, and therefore murdered Greedo. So is I'm, there a flaw in my argument? Does I, anyone yes. feel? Sir, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> I had a feeling. I had a long time, first time. Um, so, this is about to happen. Uh, so. This is about to happen. <laughs> I think it, it, everything, it, is, it is Everything happening. is happening according to my plan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel so much better. Uh, so wait a minute, what, what, can we not presume that Han is operating under the logical assumption that Greedo may not be the agent of his demise, but when he returns him to people that have put the bounty on him, Java. he will not be killed there. Well, there, there is a flaw Han, in that logic in that he was not killed when mm -hmm. he was brought to Thank Jabba. you, Seth Manukin. Yes. <laughs> it may be, it may be, what is your name? What? what is your name, sir? Isaac, hello. Isaac, hello. <laughs> It may, it may be, and, and, and it may be in Han's mind that he believes that when he is taken back to see Jabba the Hutt, that he will be instantly murdered. But we know that that isn't what happened. And moreover, in, but Han in the original that. script and in the original cut, <laughs> Han, after Han murders Greedo, Jabba meets him in the hangar before they take off, before Luke and Obi-Wan Kenobi get there. And in the recut version. And in the, re and the, and in the un, 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 unmentionable recut version. And does not murder him again. And simply says, please pay me the money sometime. <laughs> now Han has been working for Jabba the Hutt before, so I don't think, I think that it is, I, I think that Han commits a heinous act in murdering Greedo. But in, in, intrinsically, morally, in the context of the narrative, it is important that he do that because he's not a hero at the beginning of the movie. He's a mercenary. And what you see is Han gradually finding a moral compass by the end of the movie. And that's what makes his return to bail out Luke in the Battle of Yavin 4 so important to his growth as a character. So from a writerly point of view, it's absurd that Greedo would have shot first. Han needs to be a murderer at the beginning and needs to be a savior at the end. The end. Next question. <laughs> Other questions about Moss Eisley? Well, I would... I would... Oh, here, we have a note. We're going to open to a formal Q&A, but I don't mind <laughs> if you jump in at any time. The question was, how do we know Greedo dies? Wait, 
if you yeah. see, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you think Han shot to wound? <laughs> <laughs> he falls over. I mean, he's shot point blank from Maybe this distance. He said, and you know what? He, what is your name? Sean. Sean. Maybe Han set for stun. <laughs> <laughs> but that would make for a worse story if it were true. Greedo is murdered by Han. Han is a murderer. We all have to deal <laughs> with reality now. Do you understand? <laughs> Donald, Donald Trump is not a normal candidate. He's a bigot. He harnessed bigotry to get the presidency. We cannot treat his presidency as normal. We cannot, we cannot offer to unify the country by accepting him because the, a line must be drawn, a moral line must be drawn, and bigotry is on the other side of that line as a country. And even though, whatever, I mean, you know, our country was founded on exclusion and genocide and, and racism, but as a, as a matter of principle that we have been working towards, we've been trying to not do that and we cannot simply say, oh yeah, Donald Trump, just another president. Normalizing Donald Trump is normalizing evil. And I don't even think he's evil. I think he's just a sociopath that, e that evil people used as their weapon. And so that's what I have to say. Yes? This better be about Greta. <laughs> She's talking about me. Which, who are you talking about, she, me? She's definitely talking yeah. about me. Oh, okay, so. I'm not telling you to attack. No, but when that line is drawn in the sand and the person on the other side is going to try and bring you down, to bring you down and, and dismiss what you just said, by bringing us down. Are you the other person? Who's the other person? Um, the bigots who are choosing the other side of the line. Oh. I'm not worried about bigots choosing the other side of the line. That's their, that's their choice. I mean, you know, I think that they're going to have to reckon with their consciences and history and time. I'm more worried about people on our, ostensibly on our side of the line, um, who take Donald Trump's conciliatory message in his victory speech at face value. And we can't. And I don't say this to say that Donald Trump is, is an evil liar. He's simply something who will say whatever comes into his mind at that moment in order to make the people around him applaud. And you know, to me, I feel it's like those of us who choose to not be bigots and to stand on the side of the most vulnerable people or any vulnerable people in our society have to stay on this side of the line. And I include democratic politicians and media in that. Do you know what I mean? That, that I would just encourage people to not normalize what's happened. There's a huge, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't feel, I was, I was of mixed mind about President Obama, who's my hero, meeting with Trump today. Because I want to say, you're letting down 
the people, your daughters, you know? Because I know how my daughter felt when an intensely qualified woman lost to a fatuous, dilettante, creepy man because he felt like running that year. It's monstrous. The, the only thing that made it better was someone on Twitter today floated the idea, and I've really taken it to heart, that Obama, someone said, Obama is reaching out to Trump because if he doesn't, if we don't keep the line of communication open with Trump, he'll only be surrounded by Breitbart, not Breitbart, but you know, what's his name from Breitbart? Dan. And, and Pence and Gingrich and Giuliani. And the reality of Trump is he's incredibly susceptible to other points of view if you flatter him. And I'm like, oh, I didn't think about that. Maybe, maybe Barack Obama's idea is to become Donald Trump's best friend. <laughs> and, he, and to control him. And I'm like, Barack Obama could do that. <laughs> he totally could do that. Maybe, that. maybe that's the ninth dimensional chess Barack Obama is playing. And you know what? I bet you on some level he's like, yeah, I want to keep a channel of communication open to this guy so he can hear from the person who was president before what, it's really, what this is really all about. I, I pity Donald Trump. I feel, I feel like he is, I mean, what we haven't talked about, and, and it sounds like a slur, and I don't mean it that way, that he is um, mentally ill. And we, nev we can't talk about it because it's a huge accusation to make, especially since we don't want to be in a world where, men where being mentally ill is an accusation. Do you know what I mean? Like, but he's got a, a different perception of reality than we have. And I feel like it's almost our job to remind him as much as anyone else that bigotry of any kind is not acceptable in the American conversation. And he, I hope, I don't know if it's possible, but you know, if he were to atone in some meaningful way for unleashing what he has unleashed, then I would, I would normalize his presidency. But until then, I'm just like, no, you're still a, not okay, not okay in my book. But I'm not certainly not telling anyone what to do, and I'm certainly not a celebrity. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, I couldn't even fill up this hall. Come on. I mean, I love you all, but where, where are your friends, you guys? <laughs> um, so, I mean, this is something I've been thinking a lot about, um, and. Uh, Oh, but here's what I think you should do. No, I'm gonna, now I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm sorry, Seth. Yeah, no. It, if you don't agree with me, fine. If you, if you do agree with me, then, you know, Elizabeth Warren, my dad just sent me an email that she sent out where she really, you know, after saying, I'm going to work with, with the new president to, you know, reform banking, which is her crusade, and she's an incredibly impressive and wonderful person. But I was still like, no, don't. No, 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 don't work with them. Like, she sent out a, an email that was very reassuring that she was going to hold, him to the, hold his feet to the fire on these issues. And I would just say, write, write to your congresspeople and say to them, don't, please don't, please oppose the president. Please treat this president with all due skepticism and suspicion. And 
and remember who you're representing. I think that, I think that actually is a meaningful thing to do. And then obviously prepare for the midterms because we have to take back the Senate and the House if we can. Now, what did you want to say, Seth? Um, well, this, also, whiskey helps. Uh, I picked the wrong year to stop drinking. Um, it's actually 19 years ago. Uh, <laughs> if you had called me then, I would have said wrong I, year, Seth. I, I think, I think, I think not, you don't know what's going to happen in I'm 19 years. Pretty, pretty confident it was the right decision, actually. But, um, I'm glad for you. Uh, um, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, and. Uh, um, um, it's incredibly difficult, obviously, to feel powerless, um, especially in the face of something that threatens um, the values that you hold dear and or the values that I hold dear and what I thought I knew and understood um, about this country. Um, and uh, I've, been, um, I've been struggling with how to find a way forward that does not involve just sobbing every day, um, which I think is, uh, um, first of all, not a great thing to do if you're a parent, uh, because that conveys anxiety um, to your children, which I'm also trying not to do. But um, and so I, there are a couple of things I've done in the last couple of days, including reaching out to um, to Republicans that I know, Republicans who were um, uh, very opposed to Trump. Um, but the reason I've been reaching out to them is on the theory that, um, you know, he has the power um, and he has both houses of Congress now. And he is someone who has shown that when he is, feels threatened or pushed into a corner, um, he will lash out and strike back. Um, in ways that now that he is president can be really, really dangerous. And so um, I would rather have people, you know, I don't expect Obama and Trump to be BFFs, but um, I would rather have people that, while I may disagree with them on some things, um, I agree with on basic values involving respect and, um, and a belief in humanity and a belief in science and climate change because the prospects for what could happen uh, in four years or in two years um, are too frightening to consider. What are the conversations that you're having with these, when you say Republicans, are you talking about friends who are Republican voters or no, Republican I'm talking lawmakers? About like, like, yeah, uh, like campaign managers for presidential candidates, um, primarily in campaign strategists. And um, I've been talking to them. I mean, I reach out to them and said, we're on different sides of the political aisle, and we disagree about a lot of things. But I think there are more basic things that we agree about. And um, I would be interested in talking to you about ways that we can work together to mitigate the 
effects of a Trump presidency? You know, I, I've had a huge shift just over the past 12 hours about, like, you shouldn't talk to those people. The, you know, I'm not, not, not your friends, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, no, they're not, they're not, they're not, yeah. Every, every citizen is my neighbor as far as I'm concerned. And I, and I greet them with love, even if they're not my friends. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And what the Republican, for those of you who don't like a two-party system, doesn't exist anymore. Because the Republican Party doesn't exist anymore. There is a Trumpist movement that Trump activated that, that like a parasite, like, a, like that fungus that takes over the brain of an ant has invaded the Republican Party and the remaining Republicans, you know, I mean, but that's what it, they're, that's they're, what it is there. They're fungus fans. They're, yeah, sure. Fans. <laughs> oh, sure. But I mean, you know, like the, the remaining Republicans are, are left wondering what happened to, to their party and the principles of that party because Trump flouts all social conservatism and he flouts, you know, if he, if he seems hardcore on certain uh, you know, traditionally Republican issues now, he was exactly the opposite 15 yeah, yeah. years ago. Not even 15 years ago. You know, or not even that, right? Yeah. So he's this completely unpredictable parasite who has activated a core of angry uh, people largely in rural America, which is a, a place that I love, you know, and they don't know how to deal with it. They don't know what to do. They are torn whether to disavow it in order to maintain some sort of mainstream respectability or to throw mainstream respectability away because these people will ride them to power. And you watch them go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between whether to embrace or, or disavow Trump. And, and right now they feel like, well, those who stuck with him, Christie, Giuliani, Gingrich, and, and even McConnell and, to a we, in a weird degree, Ryan, like they feel like they've won. But they still don't know what's going, none of us know what's going to happen. He has no policy, you know, it's like, he's complete, by definition, he's completely unpredictable. The Republican Party is going to, to dance at his whim. Um, and if they think that they're going to be able to get in there and control the policy the way Dick Cheney controlled the Bush presidency. I, I don't know that that's, maybe, but I don't know that that's going to happen either. Yeah. And, but my, my change of thinking has been, like initially I was like, what's been revealed is that the, that the Republican Party, and I've never said this, but I've never felt this, even in the, in the darkest years of the Bush presidency where I felt the, the, triumph, the triumphal wing of the Republican Party loved to dance on the grave of liberal, liberal Democrats and say that we weren't American. Do you know, like, even then I was, I'd never felt that they weren't my neighbors and friends and the Republican Party should be done with. But now I feel like, how can you support a party that clearly sold out every one of its principles for power? It's absurd, you know? Um, yeah. And so, but, but it's in, it was that one tweet, it was on the train here, where that person said, we need to keep a line of communication open to Donald Trump from a pragmatic point of view, because that's the only, he is influenceable. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, you know, we do need to keep, we need to keep those lines of communication open. And I, and I think it's, it's, you know, between 
high-powered uh, university elites and Republican strategists. That line needs to stay open from uh, soon-to-be former presidents and soon-to-be future presidents. That line needs to stay open. And then individual to individual, family to family, like if you know a, if you're related to a Trump voter, keep the line open. As much as it feels so uh, maybe, maybe. satisfying to suggest that you close that window shade, the more that the more that you talk to people, the more that your point of view becomes normal to them. And I can't remember the, the person on Twitter who, the name of the person on Twitter who had written a very powerful series of tweets about having grow, grown up in the Midwest. And his thesis was, like, we talk about having to reach out to voters in rural communities who supported Trump and as a, as a mode of empathy. And sure, we do. We need to know what these people are thinking and feeling. We can't ignore their experience. But at the same time, um, they need to reach out to us. People who live in, in towns in the country don't ha have the same experience with the outside, with the world that we do. Cities exist because trade happened here. Trade happened in Boston. Trade happened in New York, in Philadelphia, in Chicago, in Los Angeles. They exist on oceans. They exist on rivers. They exist because people were coming and buying and selling stuff. And that introduced people within the cities to other points of view. There's a reason we call city people cosmopolitan. We are people of the world. There was no way for us to imagine a world in which there weren't people of other faiths, beliefs, um, uh, orientations. Like, it just was obvious. And that one-on-one -on -one contact with other people of the world taught us over centuries, and this goes back forever, cities have always been more liberal and open and tolerant because we see other people all the time and we know they're human, you know? We know they're human. Whereas people who live in the interior who farm or mine or live in, in small closed communities, I mean, these are wonderful communities, but they're defined by the fact that they rely on each other to survive and not a lot of people come in or leave. And so it is baked into the DNA of those communities to rely on each other to survive and to be suspicious of outsiders. Well, I don't need to look at polling data, but the polling data I think backs me up that those are the people who voted for Donald Trump. They're suspicious of everything that's happening as the world becomes more and more a city and less and less a small country town. But it, it's a lot, I mean, if those were the only people who voted for Donald Trump, then there wouldn't be a Trump presidency. I mean, that's not the-, the I disagree with you. Just numerically, there are not enough. Numerically, most people in the United States voted for Hillary Clinton. <laughs> I mean, the, right. most, the, most, less, most. Than, less than half of the people who are registered to vote voted, and less than half of those people voted for Donald Trump. And most of those people voted in the, in, I'm sorry to say, but in the rural white communities that voted for Republican presidents in the past two elections. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying this to diminish those people. I, 
I'm only saying it to say this is a completely classic divide in civilization that goes back to Rome. People who live in cities are more tolerant. People who live in the country are more skeptical. I've lived in both places. And I appreciate the values and the virtues of both. But because of air travel and internet and everything else, we are becoming a global community. It's not a, it's not a coincidence that the guiding conspiracy theory among the alt-right is that certain probably Jewish elites want to make a one-world government. That is the anxiety that fuels so much, if not all, of, of the revolution that we just saw two days ago. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm sorry to take such a hard stance on it, but it's like, I don't, people say, what's wrong with us as a country that Donald Trump is elected? It's not what's wrong with us as a country. Less than half, less than a quarter of us voted for him. But they are our neighbors as well. And it's on us and it's on them to find common ground in the future. And what I really, like, I really, in a weird way, and perhaps this is the bargaining stage of grief, <laughs> like, I kind of feel like the key is who has the ear of Donald Trump? I mean, who, who has the ear? Who has the ear yeah, of yeah. Donald Trump? Right. Because I absolutely think Donald Trump is the kind of guy who will be really excited that Barack Obama wants to be friends with him. Yeah. He's, like, like, he's the guy who's like, hey, guess what? I'm friends with the former U president of the United States. It doesn't matter to him that he's the president of the United States. <laughs> you know, he's, like, he's like, hey, guess what? I actually have a black friend now. <laughs> like, like, I have no idea if that's the game that's being played right now. And maybe that's the only thing that gives me a little bit of cheer in the moment. But I, I kind of feel like, from a purely practical point of view, we know what we're dealing with Donald Trump in that we don't, he is utterly unpredictable and completely susceptible to flattery. And yeah, you know what? If, if that's the game that Barack Obama is playing, go for it. Like, maybe that'll keep us from, maybe, maybe reaching out in all kinds of different ways will keep us from the outcome that we're most afraid of. Right. Um. Anyone want to jump in? I mean, yeah. So, You're from Denmark? Yes, I am. Well, good for you. <laughs> can, can, can we move My, in with you? <laughs> can we move in with you? Yeah. <laughs> Look at, hey, hang on. What is your name? Adam. Adam? Yeah. And you're from Denmark, and you have those awesome clear frame glasses. You're like Bernie Sanders' dream. <laughs> I wish it could come true. What do you mean by that?
Yeah. Well, Barack Obama, you know, came to office with the power that he was going to reach across, with the promise, I should say, that he, to reach across the aisle. And, and, to, and that there was not two Americas, that there was one United States of America. And it really bothered a lot of people on the left that he meant it. And, of course, he was rejected for eight years. But at the same time, I think there's something, something magical about the fact that even the person who spent years denying his legitimacy as president, that Barack Obama would meet him in friendship and I dare say love. And I think that that's, that's something I only came to appreciate on the train here. So I'm just saying, it took me hours to get to where I am today. <laughs> yeah. I share your gall. You know, if you can't hear, the gentleman said he shares my gall. We, uh, we share a gallbladder. <laughs> I, I always wanted to meet you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and, and, and I mean, this is a, and your fear, this is a person that has said in an interview, you know, why can't we use tactical nuclear weapons, which is like just vacuous and unthinkable and dangerous in a, in a, somebody with actual power. I think about it as thinking outside the box, but <laughs> sure. I live in that box. It's a good box. It's not irradiated. Uh, but we need these institutions of democratic self-governance when he gives them back, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I wonder what would be accomplished by withdrawal or pure obstructionist, because we've had that under divided government for several years, and it, it's, it's what's enabled you know, this, this, this history of shutdowns and, and team first over country or institution or democratic norm or, it's also, or it's also, habit of mind. Yeah. It, it, that's what's, to me, set the stage. It's the Republican Party is reaping that harvest now with a sort of white nationalist embodied you know, Trump presidency. But, 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 you know, the table has been set by... They're reaping, they're reaping, the, har they're reaping the harvest of their eight-year obstructionism. With a, with a nominally Republican president, but also with a president they can't control, who does not share their values, who does not share their agenda, who has no agenda of his own, and an electorate that he alone controls and that they have no influence over. So it, it's, a bitter, it's a bitter victory for them, even if they feel triumphal this, in this moment. But, but clogging the machine of government does not necessarily you know, play into Right. But it's also not possible right now. I mean, the, the Republicans have a majority in both houses of Congress. So, um, no, yeah, no, I know. Yeah, but I mean, just, just it, 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 that's another, I'm supporting you. That's another argument against obstructionism because, uh, you know, if the Republicans want to do away with the filibuster, they can do away with the filibuster. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I agree with yeah. I agree with you. The gentleman said, "Isn't it about keeping the conversation open, and and not becoming?" I, I'm extrapolating from what you're saying, but you know, not choosing obstructionism as a goal unto itself and a, and a strategy unto itself, while also not normalizing what happened. And I think that there is, 
a delicate way to thread that particular needle. I mean, yeah, it, it you know, the, um, the Republican Party, um, the faction of the Republican Party that uh, is offended and opposes Trump, I think has not yet had a reckoning with the racism um, that it allowed that helped fuel Trump within the Republican Party. Right. And that's a difficult, um, it's, you know, that's a difficult, for me, that's a difficult needle to thread because, um, you know, I am glad Mitt Romney is taking the stance he is and has against Trump. Um, and I also am aware that he was the person who had Donald Trump during the height of birtherism on stage with him asking for his nomination. Yeah. And it is that type of uh, behavior that helped normalize Trump. Um, but uh, I guess I believe that, um, yeah, I, 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 I believe that there is a way to reach those um, that group of people and that uh, it is going to be better for the country and better for the people living in the country if Elizabeth Warren and Mitt Romney um, uh, Get married. are working together. Because <laughs> um, he, can, he can do that. He can have more than one. <laughs> yes, sir. What's happening? Just oh, make wow. a note to edit that out before this. Does that work? All right. Um, so what been... is your name? Leo. Say again? Leo. Leo? Yeah. And by the way, Leo was the first to find the microphones in the audience. <laughs> so, Leo. There's one. There's another one here. A bag of mini candy. <laughs> All right. Um, I've been toying with a question for the past, feels like a year. Um, and it's whether Trump voters are going to be, and if yes, when. Um, disappointed with Trump and realize that he's not working for them, but working for himself. Do you have more, do you have more to say? No. Oh. <laughs> I, we've been encouraged by the news media to feel empathy for Trump voters. Uh, no one I, has ever I love the fact that you're breaking into that. Yeah, yeah, go for it. I love that. And that's, a, that's literally a mixed bag. I, I would not. <laughs> I would not, I, you don't need to share that. That's all yours. Sorry. No, no, that's, I should have taken that opportunity to have some more whiskey then. Uh, and um, we've been encouraged by the news media a lot, recently, especially. Once we, once we presumed they were all going to be a bunch of losers and we had to feel sorry for them, to feel empathy for the Trump voter. Uh, even though, almost by definition, the Trump voter was not feeling any empathy for us. Uh, the Trump voter was instead fantasizing about electrocuting Hillary Clinton and attacking uh, protesters in their midst. Um, not all Trump voters. Certainly, I think what we saw that surprised everyone was the amount of silent, quiet Trump voters who did not go to rallies um, and just voted for Trump for their own reasons. But it was definitely a part of the Trump campaign um, to advertise their anger and their desire to strike out at the people that they felt um, in establishment who had let them down uh, and outside of establishment that they were taking away their opportunities and power. 
uh, I do feel empathy for the Trump voter, and I never felt it more. I mean, I, felt, I feel for them because there are people I know who are my neighbors, and I would imagine my in, family members in Brooklyn. who are... Well, yes, but I also, in case you doubted my white privilege, I also have a home in western Massachusetts right. and in uh, coastal Maine. Right. So, uh, and I, we saw a lot of Trump signs around there. And within, and you know, my, my, both of my parents' families come from uh, working class backgrounds whose who's the fathers worked in manufacturing industries that don't exist anymore. And their, and their wives didn't work at all. It's a world that existed that doesn't exist anymore. And if I were a son or a daughter living in that world uh, and, and did not have the benefit of my parents moving to Boston, um, I'd be probably pretty pissed off and confused and desperate as well. Yeah. But... So I have tremendous empathy, but I don't think I've had more empathy than while listening to the victory speech that Donald Trump gave, in which he thanked Hillary Clinton for her campaign and for her service, the public service over many years and the debt of gratitude that he owed her. And in a, I felt two intense feelings. I was in my car at that moment. I own a car, that's just how incredibly wealthy I am. <laughs> One was, oh shit, I almost bought it. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, he's gonna be fine. He wants to learn from us. Ugh. And then I realized like, oh no, wait a minute. How can he possibly, how can anyone, well, you heard what he said five days ago. Like he promised to appoint a special prosecutor to investigate her and hopefully put her in jail. And now he's going, thank you for your service. It's impossible. And in that moment I was like, there are a bunch of Trump supporters, not all. I think a lot of them were very happy to deal with the cognitive dissonance of knowing that he couldn't build a fucking wall and that he couldn't form a deportation force and he wasn't gonna put Hillary Clinton in jail. But there were a lot of them who sincerely believed that that might happen. And now the betrayal began not even a full 24 hours after he won. Like he's gonna break a lot, a lot of hearts. And I'm going to fucking enjoy it. <laughs> but he's also going to appoint a Supreme Court uh, justice, so that's no good. We're going to go here. How are you? I'm good. Good How to see you? you. It's good to see you, too. Um, Maybe just angle the mic down a little bit, because it's... Uh, <laughs> I'm short. <laughs> it's it's uh, like most of America, it's built for tall white men. Yeah. <laughs> um, that wasn't funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> Actually, it was really funny. Um, I do want to somehow bring this to comedy. Um, sure, good I, luck. Yeah. I, Par- appar- apparently, you have a different definition of comedy than I. <laughs> um, this has been very difficult for me, and thank you for being here. Um, I was thinking about lines, we talked about lines that we cross, and I was just remembering when Trump was on Jimmy Fallon and how 
there was just this very dangerous normalization of this bigot lunatic that we now have to deal with for four years. Is there a kind of approach that you believe as a comedian that we as funny people and as comedians have to take in order to prevent further normalization of this person. Because I feel that laughter can hide a lot and I don't want jokes to disguise what this person really is. Right. So, well, first I would just say I personally agree with the term bigot lunatic, <laughs> but I would, I would point out that if he is a lunatic, if he is mentally ill, that's not his choice. That's just something that he is. We should be aware of it and we should maybe be careful about electing him president. But bigot is a choice. Like, he made a choice. And I don't know that he's a bigot. Like, I don't know that he's a racist. I believe that he's a racist in the sense that he believes that there is a human named Donald Trump. And then the world is full of something less than humans who are not him that he has to manipulate in order to please him. But that's... And to me, that would be evidence of sociopathy that he's, that, and mental illness, you know. But he did, I think, make an active choice to court bigotry in this campaign, even if he himself, and even worse, if he himself does not personally feel, I mean, we know he hates women. You know, he, we know that he hates, it's on record that he thinks of women as less than human, right? Like, we can't deny that. But he convinces himself that he doesn't feel that way. He personally doesn't feel that he has racial or animus or misogyny, but he's, I think he's he loves the blacks. confused. Yeah. No one, no one has more respect for human, I mean for women. That was the craziest. That was like, you are beyond crazy at that point. But he did, there's no question that he made a strategic choice to align with bigotry within the, the extreme right wing and people who are susceptible to those messages. And I think that that's the part that's sort of unforgivable and why you can't bring him on a show and pet his head like he's some kind of funny uncle, you know. I mean, and for me, for me it was, it's the thing that always, it was, I remember listening to it in Brookline when I was a teenager on They Might Be Giants Flood, you know, like your racist friend. That song is like, if you have a racist friend, he's not your friend. You know, you can't treat him like a friend. Or the specials. If you have a racist friend, now is the time for that friendship to end. And I, I, I've, I've met Jimmy Fallon. I think he's a very sweet dude. He's a son of Boston. I think he means well, but I think that, that was a, a misjudgment on his part. Like, that was not an okay thing to to do, you know? How do you deal with it comedically? I mean, I'm not on The Daily Show. And the reason I'm not on The Daily Show 
I mean, I, I, I loved the show last night, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. You know, it's, it's the, a, a part, uh, uh, you know, I love, I love Stephen. Do you need me to get that? Anybody? I think it's, it's utter shame that The Nightly Show was canceled because I felt that Larry had a really important voice in what was going on this year in the world. But there is no question that The Daily Show is offering you know, non-white points of view, young non-white points of view and non-male points of view that need to be heard. And um, both Michelle Wolf and Hassan had incredible pieces last night. And, and, and yet, I still don't feel that anyone's figured out how to deal comedically with this. I'm not, on the daily, I'm not on The Daily Show because my job on The Daily Show was to be a parody of Donald Trump. I mean, in 2011, I suggested a pivot from my sort of generic expert sociopath point of view to specifically deranged millionaire sociopath point of view. Because Donald Trump was on CNN and Fox all the time peddling birther nonsense. I was like, we need to have, why is this you know, millionaire or claimed billionaire allowed to go on news television to spout nonsense all the time? We need to have that character. And also it tied in with the book that I was promoting at the time. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, like it's a good book, uh, and and so you know, I I did that character, and by the time that Trevor came in in 2015, I really didn't want to do it anymore, and in part because I I I didn't feel that I could come up with comedy that would rival the long form improv entertainment product that Donald Trump was presenting. Like there was. Comedy is so much about exaggeration, and there is no exaggerating upon him. I couldn't, I consider it my failing. Like, I couldn't figure out how to make fun of that, you know? And I think I'm still, like, you're, so you're asking the question. I'm not sure I have the answer, you know? Like, how to make fun of what's happening. There is a way we'll find someone who can do it. It's not me. Um, but there is, there is comedy. I think in the best tradition of The Daily Show, which I think continues in its best tradition, where it's both legit funny, but also a critique and also illuminating and not ponderous and, and dumb. Does that help? A little. Hmm. <laughs> That's enough. I'm supposed to solve it for you. <laughs> just tweet it when you, when you come up with the full answer. OK. I'll let you just, just boil it down to 140 You've characters. had your say, white man, <laughs> over here. Yeah. Hello. Um, mm. I, oh, something yeah, it's, that's It's 8 o'clock, so are, do we, are we putting a stop on this? Yeah, we can, we can, I mean, unless. Gosh, so sorry. We'll just take two more comments from white men. And then we'll <laughs> Welcome um, to my life. We can, um, we can go for it for a little while. I mean, we don't. Okay. We don't so lose the what, I'm, have, I'm, I'm Chris. I'm going nowhere. So. Uh, so one thing that's been occurring to me is we're talking a lot about Trump's presidency, but there is Trump's America. So you're talking about talking to Republicans and, and bridging that conversation, but how are you going to talk to people who are marginalized? 
and making sure that you're not just promoting your agenda, but protecting them. Well, go ahead, Seth. Well, um, that, that's, uh, that's something I've been thinking about a lot also. And um, I really do believe that, um, that finding some way to be active and be um, to add yourself to fight against what's going on is both ennobling and can be an effective bulwark against desperation. And so, um, and what I hope in myself uh, um, is that I continue to act on the despair that I'm feeling. So um, I called up the ACLU yesterday uh, and, um, and had a conversation with someone there and told them what my, the areas that I could be potentially helpful in and essentially said, let's figure out how you can put me to work. Um, and, uh, you know, I called up the Reporters Committee on Freedom of the Press because I think it's going to be really important to um, make sure that journalists can continue to report on what's going on safely. Uh, and I did this same thing there. Um, I uh, am someone who grew up outside of Boston in not the most racially diverse suburb. Um, uh, and I've tried since I was here to, to reach out to people who are very different than me. And so um, last year, one of the communications forums that we did was um, about how uh, Muslims are being treated at MIT and around the world. And so um, I, uh, I called up the people that, uh, some of the people that I met through that. Um, and uh, that was not my first instinct. My first instinct was to kind of roll up into a ball. Um, and then my second instinct was to figure out how to make sure um, I was going to be OK. And uh, um, I'm going to be OK. Probably, I mean, things, shit has to really go south before I'm on a cattle car. Uh, um, but that's, uh, I know that's not true for everyone. Um, and uh, so I would really support people finding ways that they can be active um, and use what's going on now. You know, I, I was, there were times when I was really depressed during the Bush presidency, and I was really depressed, and then I went on and continued to do what I was doing. Um, and I am sure, like a lot of people, am um, in huge despair over the fact that I did not do everything I could to make sure that Trump wasn't president. Um, uh, I didn't make calls. You know, my, my, when Obama ran my, um, my very elderly grandmother <laughs> perhaps not very effectively berated people on the phone from a call center um, for, um, for, for hours and hours and hours every week. And um, uh, so, um, you know, to everyone, I think if we can take this moment and make decisions about what we're going to do with our lives and then not forget that next week when it's not quite so doesn't feel quite so scary and the wound isn't quite so fresh. Um, yeah, but I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm very aware that one of the things that I need to do is um, learn um, from and um, about and spend time, more time with people who will be more affected than I am because uh, for me a lot of this is, um, is somewhat notional. Um, so, um, yeah. 
I've mostly been tweeting and retweeting. <laughs> With regard to helping people who are marginalized, m my instinct, right or wrong, at this moment is to, and this is about retweeting, is to retweet the testimony of people who are having a, um, being attacked, to listen rather than prescribe, and to be available to the people I know in marginalized and vulnerable communities personally and through the internet, and to help in the way that I'm asked to help. Um, and, I, and I feel, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, if there were, if there were something more than I could do, I, I invite you or anyone to encourage me to do it, and I will happily do it. But I don't know that it is um, helpful for me to tell people how to feel or act at this point. Outside of my community of relatively affluent white dudes, like I'll, I'll tell those people, like, get active, you know, press your representatives, don't forget, exactly as Seth said, you know, don't, don't, like my, my mission, I think, is for, is to help and force the people who are in the best position to forget that this is real and meaningful in people's lives, to not forget, and to not just sort of go along as normal, and to keep the, to keep the wound open and hurting, because there are people who are hurting, and to monitor the people who are hurting, amplify their voices, and offer them help in the, in the way that they, they need and want and ask to be helped. So that's, that's my answer for what it's worth. I mean, I don't know if it's the right one. Hi, um, my name is Serge. Um, well, looking through history, you see, uh, well, Trump, uh, if he manages to work together with uh, the houses, uh, all the other Republicans in government, who will have more power, the Republican Party will have more power, and him himself as well, than any other president since 1928, and we all know what happened in 1929, you know, the Great Depression. And I don't all know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, I wonder what, you know, Obama was probably surprised this all happened, probably didn't have a plan, I don't know, but in two months, what do you think he can accomplish? Hide the nukes, maybe, you know? Well, I, so, I, I go ahead, Seth. Well, in all seriousness, I mean, there are, you know, there are a lot of, there, there, he is undertaking efforts to build walls around as much as he can. Um, and there are not a small number Wait, of- Obama or Trump? Obama. Okay. Obama. <laughs> to build walls around, uh, to build walls around, um, to put in safeguards uh, in as many ways that he can. And there are lots of Republicans who agree with that. Um, uh, there are, it's possible that um, if Congress doesn't act. What, what is he building walls around? Exactly. Well, so there, um, he, there are potential safeguards that, and policies that he can enact involving nuclear weapons. 
before he leaves office if he has the support of, uh, of Congress, which he may be able to get. Um, it's possible that if Congress doesn't act, um, he actually uh, can appoint a Supreme to you know, push a sort of constitutional issue and appoint a Supreme Court justice and appoint Garland. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also um, possible that there are enough Republicans to sort of go along with that. Um, so yeah, I mean, but from like the tiny minuscule <coughs> amount that I know and that people I've talked to, that is the overwhelming preoccupation of what his administration is going to well, be Well, let me give you my point of view with no data and having <laughs> spoken to nobody at all. <laughs> There's no way Merrick Garland's getting confirmed as a Supreme Court justice before the end of the year, before the end of the Obama administration. Trump will nominate a Supreme Court nominee, and it'll be a fight, but he'll get his person through. And there's no way no one's going to hide the nuclear bombs from him. This is the cost of the election. He's the president. Sorry, I mean, I know that I, I'm not cynical. And I'm not fatalistic. <laughs> but it's like, I'm going to call know. shenanigans on that first one. Well, I mean, if, if, the if the Republican Congress were to, to move swiftly to confirm Merrick Garland as a Supreme Court justice, there would be a huge outcry among the far right and Breitbart about robbing Donald Trump of his Cthulhu-given right <laughs> to, to appoint a Supreme Court nominee. And of course, it's all their fault because they didn't confirm the dude when he was put forward. But it would be a huge public relations disaster that would demonize the Republican Congress. And we know that they are too terrified of bad PR to stand up against the creep who is now their president, they're not going to do it. They're, they'll talk about it. I'm sorry, Seth. I mean, I know you know these people and you're talking to them. No, no. And you I actually have insights. <laughs> but I'm just saying, <laughs> from where I sit on this side of the stage. I mean, I think I, I, the, 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 the um, uh, I would love it, but this is pure Grief bargaining. Republicans were as surprised that Trump got elected as Trump was and as Hillary was. And there were a lot of Republicans who gave a sort of grudging, like, you know, tried to dance on that line or say that they weren't endorsing but were voting for and who um, uh, did not think that he had a chance at winning. Did yeah, the same but however surprised they were that he got elected, he got elected. And guess what? Republicans are going to get over their surprise. They're going to be like, okay, we're in control now. We're going to do our thing. No way. I think there's, Sorry. it's more likely we'll see what happens. there's a rift in the Republican Party than that, that, that everyone falls in lockstep. Well, how could there be a rift? Because there, because, I mean, what is your name again, sir? Oh, I was someone else. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> My name's Chris. Hi. We got to go. <laughs> what was your name okay. again? Okay. Serge, that's right. I knew it was a foreign name. <laughs> I, w I want my country back, by the way. <laughs> Serge, I'll leave it to you. Let's meet here again in a year, <laughs> and we'll see if Merrick Garland is a member of the Supreme Court. I mean, we just got two for the price of one with John Hodgman. Everyone, you heard it here first. <laughs> Another $800,000. <laughs>
All right, lightning round. Go. Yeah. Uh, my name's Julian. I just want to speak briefly to uh, the comments that young lady just made and to yours about keeping the wound open and feeling that. I, I just, I just had an interaction uh, today with a friend around my age, privilege. We're talking, you know, was wondering why, and we hear this often. Democrats at lost were being so childish and having protests and unable to, you know, all this grief that was coming from adults on Facebook, you know, uh, with the election. And, you know, I pointed out to him, you're not. You talk about grief coming from adults on Facebook? I know. People are sharing. How old are you? In interesting. How old am I? Yeah. What are you talking about adults on Facebook? Non-college age people who was who professional working adults was who, who my friend was uh, okay. addressing. Got it. Um, but I pointed out to him, you're not the homosexual, you know, who's getting beat up, you know, because folks claimed, well, Trump's president, this is allowed. You're not someone who's marginalized and feeling uncomfortable in the classroom. You're not the son or daughter of an immigrant that doesn't know if your family's going to be able to stay together. And his response back was, well, that can't be true. You know, those things aren't happening. I haven't seen those things reported, and obviously we all live in our individual bubbles, but that's yeah. why... Even though that's it, exactly what Trump promised would happen. Ex exactly. That's right. what he advocated for, in a way, and that is what's happening. So that I just want to underscore that to keep that wound open and, you know, publicize when these things happen, because there's a good portion of folks that don't believe these things are happening, uh, and that's part of and the outcome of what we've Even if they had. voted for that to happen. Exactly, and which this individual did. But you know what? The other thing about, and I see you're raising your hand. Just go to Boston, cross the river, walk a mile, and you'll see it. Happening. Cross the river. Cross the river and go into Boston. Right. You'll see it happening. You see this happening. Yeah, but a lot of people that, choose not to see right. it happening. But I think that here's the hard part. You need to remind people that it's happening. And you also need to appreciate that sometimes they won't believe it. And that's OK. We have a, 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 a kind of non-functional rule in our household with regard to our children, where we will tell them they have to do their homework or they have to get dressed or and it was more of an issue when they were younger and prone to throw a tantrum and they didn't want to do what they had to do they didn't want to see what they had to see they didn't want to acknowledge that it was time to turn off the tv or get out of bed and do what they had to do they didn't want to acknowledge reality and we would yell and yell and yell and it wouldn't work Finally, you realize it doesn't help to yell. And we would say to them, I know you understand the language I'm saying to you. I know you understand the words I'm saying to you. It is time for you to get out of bed and get dressed. I don't mean to infantilize Trump supporters. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. But there were times when our kids would absolutely continue with the tantrum, but we knew that they heard us, even so. And I think it's the same thing. You keep saying to them, I am human. This is wrong. This is happening. And when they say, I, that guy disappeared, 
when they say it's not happening, just say, okay, I'm telling you it's happening. And then over time, I'm confident that they will see that it's happening. It will take, it will be up to them to accept it. We can't make them accept it. But we can show it to them and we'll get some of them and we'll never get some of them. And that's, what, that's all we can do. You know, a lot of people have said, we need to reach out to Trump supporters to show them the humanity that we all share. It's not our job. It's their job to wake up to the humanity we all share. We can help them, but we can't bring them there. And I'm not saying this is all Trump supporters. From my point of view, anyone who voted for Trump, if they're not a bigot, is bigot adjacent because they have agreed to a campaign that traded on bigotry. But we can show them the world, and they can either accept it or not. But if we don't show it to them, they'll never get there. That's my point of view. We got to, we got to. We only have 45 to 59 more minutes. Um, we got to, and if, can you do a 30 second question? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's actually, um, I just, I wanted to say thanks for you for being here. Um, I really like your books and your audio books. And um, I was thinking podcast. of like, one of the reasons I do right. is the. Um, I can only talk about the podcast so many times. Maybe they'll understand, maybe they won't. <laughs> The, 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 you talk about the, they're, they're absurdities, but they're a lie that holds a greater truth. And one of the things that I get in that um, is your heart, the, your humanity that you tell in all these stories, the sadness, um, the bleakness, the hope. Uh, and I kind of almost didn't want to come here tonight um, because this is a very scary time. Uh, and it's a time when many of our hearts are breaking. And I have the privilege of being able to uh, forget that for moments. And I was worried to come here and experience someone else's heart broken or breaking, uh, as I knew you would be able to tap in so powerfully. So thank you for being here. And thank you for talking about this in a way that I think uh, gives us something to work with. Well, it's an awkward time for me to say to you that I am not only a robot, but a hologram. <laughs> <laughs> I, I left this world a long time ago. <laughs> but thank you. And Yale hat behind you, you have a thing you want to say? Um, yeah, super quickly. Uh, I, there's a way that you talk on your podcast, I forget what it's called, but uh, what arts do now, uh, graf Hillary graphic design, amazing, all forces in entertainment, amazing for Clinton, still, like, Comics for Clinton, amazing. Art for Clinton, amazing. Still, Trump win. No good art for Trump. What art do now? I honestly did not know what you were doing for a second. Oh, thought, oh I, no, I'm so sorry. I appreciate did, that. Did you understand I, that? <laughs> you, were, you, were, you were talking in a bizarro talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, I was trying to go really fast I, because I, I, I do yeah. appreciate it. I, yeah, I, I was concerned over. you were having a stroke. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I That's really that embarrassing. Like a Yale, but, um, like a skull and bone secret yeah. language that you two were Me speaking. understand. You understand? Okay. What question again? <laughs> what is the role of arts 
now because I think we had our best, like our best forces. The art that was coming out in favor of Clinton was incredible in this campaign. Like you mentioned The Daily Show. It was so good. Everything was so good. Like the entertainment industry was entirely behind her. Her graphic design was made, like the logo was made by Pentagram. Everything was perfect. Um, every, every, yeah, art that I love. Good loved. graphic design doesn't solve the world. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but, but it does. It's just good. like, what is the role of uh, what? What should the arts do, and what what does entertainment have to do now that it's sort of all failed? Because you know, um, like so many people. Well, were I mean, for this Clinton, is the same but, thing that you know. The another person asked earlier about like what uh, Amelia asked. What's comedy supposed to do? I mean. And it's an issue that we all faced after 9-11, um, when the world broke into before and after. In a very different way, I don't mean to compare them, and people had horrible losses, you know. Uh, I, uh, all we can do is find our way, you know. I, don't, I think we are all in a moment of processing what this means, even if we're winning. Like, even if we were on the other side, we're like, holy shit, now we have this. The thing that struck me was the video of the kids in Royal Oak, Michigan, uh, the middle school, uh, where kids were chanting, build that wall, build that wall, build that wall. And I was tweeting about that. And I was like, what are you, what are you, gonna, what are you gonna do, President Obama? for the kids who are scared in that room. And only in that moment did I realize um, it's not just the kids who aren't chanting, although I think they deserve our greatest protection, but the kids who are chanting that are also scared because they're being raised in households of hate, you know, and they're processing that as best they can. You know, it's a real, there's a lot to take in. And I don't think we need to rush as artists to figure out how to process this or make fun of it. Obviously, I'm not entirely comfortable making jokes, even though that's ostensibly my job. Let's take a moment to not make jokes, think about it, talk about it, and then we'll find our bead on it and, and I hope give people what art has always given, which is a little bit of moral instruction, a little bit of history, and a little bit of distraction, you know, from whatever is behind us as we sit around the fire in the darkness. So also, there's no um, rush to it anyway. Subscribe to newspapers and magazines also, it's another Well, thing. that's where Seth and I disagree. <laughs> the mainstream media has to be brought down. Uh, Rocket Top? Sure. Or should I stay or should I go? Yeah, let's do that Let's one. do Rocky Top, because mm -hmm. you're... <laughs> You sing lead on Rocky Top, so. I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do a different one and then we'll do that one. Okay. This is You wanna song. perform without me? Yeah. That's fine. But I'm gonna perform with you on okay. that one. Because I don't feel like. And then we're done, song. two songs and then we're done. Stop giving me that look. I don't feel like, so we rehearsed Rocky Top, which is a song from Tennessee, which is a beautiful state. It went for Trump. <laughs> and I can't, I was thinking about it, it's like I, I was on a plane with a guy from Chattanooga, Tennessee, where they have the fastest broadband in the United States because they, as a community, invested in fastest broadband and got it. And this older gentleman 
who was very fun to talk to for a while about Maine and Tennessee, where he was from, uh, brought out a bottle of clear liquid that I thought was going to be moonshine. And then it turned out to be water from a lake in Maine that he was bringing to his Rotarian club so they could pray over it uh, for water security. And I realized he does not believe in science. <laughs> and then he said, Donald Trump is going to save this country. And I was put in a very awkward position of sharing a seat on a plane with a probably 85-year-old man from Tennessee who uh, was never going to be convinced to vote for anyone but Donald Trump. And I felt very sadly in my heart that the only hope that I could have was that he die. <laughs> Before election Thanks for coming day. out, folks. <laughs> All right. We are, I'm, I'm about so to I'm not going to sing that Tennessee song. Oh, you got, you got, we got to get out of here. Yeah, yeah. All right. So let's just do Rocky your song. Top? Yeah. No, no, no your, your song. Things fall apart. Everything tends to decay. Oh, shit, I can't remember the song. <laughs> you know, it takes a lot to combine atoms in such a way that they resist the lure of that darkness that lurks around the edges of every day. So I'm inviting you to join me in this fight to go down to the river and come up all three times Hank Williams was right no one gets out alive all we have to do is try to have a really good time resist the tide stand in the water that's baptism that's making light electricity is proof that we can be a little bit of light in all of this darkness So I'm inviting you to join me in this fight. Rage, rage, rage against the dying of the light. You know you have a voice you can call your own. So just clear your throat and start singing the song. Resist the tide, stand in the water. That's baptism, that's making light. Electricity is proof that there can be light. 
takes a lot of work. But oh, baby, it's worth it. That song's by Cynthia Hopkins. What are the chords again? Rocky Top? Yeah. Uh, no, not Rocky Top. Not Rocky Top? Yeah. You're going to sing with me? Yeah. You're going to do it? Um, you don't want to do Rocky Top? I want to do Rocky Top. Yeah, yeah. Rocky Top. You know that I wanted that guy to die? Uh, well, there's a lot of other good people in Tennessee. We can do, yeah. We can end on one, just the chorus, or should I say, or should I go after that? They're both in D. Okay, good. All right. Okay, so very quickly, this is a song from Eastern Tennessee called Rocky Top. It's a song founded on nostalgia, which is the most toxic impulse. It is exactly what Trump has been promising his followers, that uh, the, the, the past was better, we know it wasn't, uh, and that it is, uh, we can travel back in time to it, which we can't. Um, this song is a profoundly nostalgic song, but it's still pretty good. It's a pretty great song. <laughs> Down in the Tennessee hills Ain't no foggy smoke on Rocky Top Ain't no telephone bill So alright, so this is describing a utopia on top of a hill in eastern Tennessee where there are no telephone bills, which is the greatest thing, apparently. Uh, Once had a girl up on old Rocky Top Half bear, the other half cat it's also a utopia, apparently. Wild as a mink, but sweet as soda pop. I still dream about that. All right, so it's already, it's already dehumanizing women, and <laughs> we should have gone over a, this beforehand. Yeah, it's but. a virgin and horde dynamic. <laughs> one, one part mink, one part uh, soda pop. I still dream about that. You just well, grab her pussy. Half cat. Right? Yeah. Right. Over. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was wild so, as a mink. Wild as a mink. Right. Rocky Top, they'll always be home sweet home to me. Sorry, let's do, let's do the chorus again. Rocky Top, you'll always be home sweet home to me. Good old Rocky Top, Rocky Top, Tennessee. Rocky Top, Tennessee. Once two strangers climb, you can't stop singing now. Oh, yeah. First of all, has everyone noticed that Seth Manukin plays a mandolin? Round of applause for that. All right, here we go. One, boo, boo, boo. Once two strangers went up a rocky top looking for a moonshot too. Strangers never come down from rocky top, reckon they never will. They were murdered. <laughs> up on old rocky top grounds to rocky by far we. That's why all the folks on Rocky Top get their corn from a jar. That's bourbon. Rocky Top, you'll always be home sweet home to me. Good old Rocky Top. Rocky Top, Tennessee. Rocky Top, Tennessee. Third verse. Worst lyrics in music. I've had years of cramped up city life Trapped like a duck in a pen All I know is it's a pity life Can't be simple again Rocky Top, you'll always be 
home sweet home to me. Good old Rocky Top, Rocky Top, Tennessee, Rocky Top, Tennessee. Um. Because <laughs> it's the question on everyone's minds. Yeah, this was prompted by someone with dual with a Finnish with dual wife? citizenship, a Finnish Icelandic wife, citizenship, American husband. Half and half. It's you two. I'm American. She's it's you two, but you have the weird name. Yeah. <laughs> you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Peter she's Icelandic. Oh, she's Icelandic. That's what I just oh, said. Sorry. You seem destined to confuse me. You but your last name, name is like is Peter Schleim or something. Palmer yeah. yeah. Mm. And yeah. and also you talk like this. And that's <laughs> and that's coming from. So somewhere. your question was, should you stay or should you go to Iceland? And what is your feeling right now? Well, we still have our lease, so we're gonna stay for a little while. That's a, That's an important important criteria. For where in Iceland are you from? That's where everyone's from. Reykjavik, right? No other humans live elsewhere in Reykjavik. Do you have room for us? All, not just us. All right. All right. All right. When does your when does your lease end? In July. Well, you'll know by then. What's A seven? We're not doing that anyway. What are we What are we not doing? The A seven. Okay, we're starting. We're starting the song. Uh, we just learned sure. it. And we never yeah. met before. We, yes, yeah. Neither of us have ever known it, but uh, let's just do the first verse-ish. Let's do it until they stop singing. <laughs> Darling, you've got to let me know. Should I stay or should I go? If you say you are mine, I'll be here till the end of time. No, no, no. So you gotta let me know. Should I stay or should I go? Big finish. No, no. Next verse. Next verse. Keep going. No, no. Come on. Come on. It's always tease, tease, tease. Happy when I'm on my knees. I forgot to know it's fine and next is black. Uh, we should have switched to G. Sir, let me know. Should I stay or should I go? Should I stay or should I go now? Should I stay or should I go now? Say it will be double. So come on and let me know. Should I stay or should I go? I think we all need to go. Yes. Seth Manukin, ladies and gentlemen. Judge John Hodgman. Thank you all so much for coming out. Please. 
stay involved, support your community, and support each other, and also sign up for our mailing list, uh, and we will see you all down the line. Thank you.